This is episode 72 of Offscript with Trish Glow, sentiment interviews with interesting people. And in front of my mic today, I am so incredibly excited. I have the king of pot, who is now the king of hemp. This is Bruce Perlowin. Bruce, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, you're welcome, Trish. It's a pleasure. Well, I met you just this week because I'm doing a story on hemp, kind of a hemp 101 for people who have a lot of questions about it. And that's how I met you. And we started talking and you informed me that you're the king of pot. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh, sure. That's hilarious. I Googled you yesterday. You really are the king of pot. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of strange things about my story that people don't believe but it's all on the internet and it's all true. It, it is all on the internet. Um, so I had a lot of fun reading about you yesterday. In fact, I've told a lot of people, I'm interviewing the king of pot and people would just do the what? Like a double take, who? Listen to the podcast, it'll all be okay. All right, we are gonna talk about king of pot. And um, king of pot meaning you were one of the biggest pot smugglers in what, the 60s? In the late 60s and 70s, um, maybe up into the early 80s, I was the largest marijuana smuggler in West Coast history. Oh my gosh. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that, but we're gonna save it. It's gonna be like, it's gonna be like the main entree of this uh, podcast. First though, as I like to start all my conversations off with, where are you from originally? I was born in Philadelphia, and when I was two years old, I moved to South Miami, and from there we moved to, at four, I moved to North Miami. So I grew up in North Miami. So you're a, you were a Florida kid. I'm a Florida kid, yes. Okay, what was your childhood like, and what decade are we talking here? Well, I was born in 51, okay. so it uh, it was the 60s. I grew up in the, exactly in the middle of the post-war baby boom yep. generation. Yep. And I grew up through, you know, the 60s. The flower powers hit San Francisco, then New York, and hit Miami pretty closely two years later. Right. And, you know, I went to Lovins. We went to pop festivals. We smoked pot. Mm -hmm. The difference is that that South Florida became the import for... 99% of all marijuana coming into the United States, and I was an entrepreneur. At age seven, I started selling door-to-door shoe-shining business, and then a cosmetic jewelry. Yeah, I love sales. So let's back up a little bit. What did your parents do? My dad owned furniture stores. Okay. So he was an entrepreneur, and his business model was he built and ran furniture stores. Yeah. And mom? She was an RN. She was a nurse. Hmm. Yeah, an RN, and she worked in the hospital until all the kids got a little bit too old that she had to stay home and manage us. (laughs) How many kids? Four boys and one girl. Whoa, big family. Yeah. Are you close with your siblings? I work with all of them today. Do you really? Yeah. Wow, how far is the age difference with you guys? My the three brothers was uh, eighteen months apart. My sister's the oldest. Okay. And then. They were done having children, and then 10 years after me came the little one, Jed. Wow. So, and we, you know, we're the older brothers, so our job is to right. tell him, to tease him. So we told him when he was born, there was a monkey and a human. They were twins, and the human died. So. <laughs> That's terrible. I don't mean to be gross, but your parents were busy for a while. <laughs> yeah, they, they had their hands full with us. Really? No kidding. Are you, where are you in the lineup of the boys? I'm the oldest son. You're the oldest. So I'm the boss. You are the boss. Well, that makes a lot of sense being this entrepreneur type kid. So you said at seven, you started going door to door. Yeah, I wanted, I was always wanting to make money, you know, and be Mm. in business. So I went door to door shining shoes, 10 cents a shoe. And then my dad gave me this, what I thought was the most brilliant marketing concept on the planet, three for a quarter. 
10 cents each or three, four quarter. So I did that and I shined everybody's shoes in the whole neighborhood. And after that, business sort of ran out because how many shoes can you shine? Right. You used to throw your trash in the front yard in those days and they'd pick it up. And our next door neighbor, they threw away a bunch of cosmetic jewelry samples. Okay. So I took the cosmetic jewelry samples, I put them on a board, and I went door to door selling them 10 cents each, three for a quarter. And what, where it really sunk in and changed my life. Now, I'm seven years old at this time. Right. I knew that there's two little girls that lived in this one house. So I go to the house, I knock at the door, and I say, I'm selling these 10 cents each, three for a quarter. And the little girl screams, ah, Susan, Susan. Now, I'm petrified. Of course. What is she screaming? Does she think I'm going to hurt her? Or, you know, She goes, Susan, Susan. So I'm, I'm total fear. And she says, come look at these. They're so beautiful. And they're only 10 cents each. Aww. And it went from total fear to total elation. Yeah. Because one, I made a big sale. And two, I made a couple of young ladies very happy. Very happy. And so did that feeling stick for you? It stuck my whole life. Really? I'm a salesman in my heart. But the part of the sales is sell in a way that operates in the heart, that helps people, or in somehow changes society. Okay. So that, that, that became... The to this day, I'm doing it on a pretty grand scale. Yeah, you are. You are. We're going to talk about that. So, growing up with siblings um, in Florida, were you guys beach kids? No, we were the hippies. You had the, the, the greasers, the surfers, and then the hippies. Okay, wait, who were the greasers? The car guys. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. The hippies and the surfers. Right. I the love surfers it. were cool. The greasers were sort of rednecks. Okay. And and uh, and and the but. But the surfers and the hippies smoke pot. So we're okay. so part you're of the same tribe. You're yeah. buddies. So you are a hippie. Yes. Your siblings hippies too? Yes. My okay. the youngest one. The next one, the middle one, wasn't so much a hippie, but he yeah, sort of. Yeah, okay. we all yeah, I know. Kind of grew up I mean, in that decade. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean I had leather shops, you know, with the fringe suede purses Love and it. jackets and Love peace it. symbols. Of course. Um what kind of music were you into at this point? I was into the you know the '60s, you know right. Jimi Hendrix, Bob Marley, classic, the Stones, the classic rock and right. roll. But I always liked the ballads the best, like the Peter Paul and Mary, yeah, because they were great and they were telling a story about social change. Absolutely, you know Bob Dylan, very political, political very, music. Yes, Love social it. movement, social mm-hmm. change, because you know that was the establishment, and we didn't like the establishment. We didn't like anything about it. No. In fact, you were fighting against? Yes, we were totally anti-establishment. Right. We, you know, the, the whole generation, we did our own drugs, we did our own clothes, our own hairstyle, long hair, our own re- new religions, new foods, health foods, organic gardening, back to land movement. It was all contrary to the established, you know, way of straight America at the right. time. We didn't want to be Ozzy and Harriet. Exactly. So you go to high school in South Florida. Mm-hmm. Okay. You graduate. Yeah. What do you want to, What at this point in life, it, are you pretty much sold on, I'm going to be a salesman when I grow up? Well, first of all, I was a high-performance athlete in high school, you know, which Dude. they had a real problem with it. I was undefeated weightlifting champion in the state of Florida for four years. Look at you, Bruce. Okay, I was the captain of gymnastics team for um, two years, 11th and 12th grade, which is hard to be the captain in 11th grade. And so I was for two years. I took third in the teenage nationals in weightlifting in my weight division in, when I was 19. 
So, so here you have this champion, high-performance athlete winning all these awards right. with long hair right. that they hated. They hated it. And they had to keep announcing Bruce Perlow won the state championships, Bruce Perlow won tri-state, and they didn't know what to do with me because you know, they wanted me to cut my hair, and I wouldn't. You wouldn't. And I wore a scarf around my, 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 my jeans because that meant you're protesting the war. And then one day in homeroom, a joint fell out of that scarf when my coach said, Bruce, please take that off. You're, you think it's embarrassing me. So I took it off and I hung it on my side. And when I did that, the joint fell out. Oh, no. And they couldn't prove that it was me. That it, because, but the next thing I'm looking around, and I see the teacher at homeroom, up to the, not at homeroom, at study hall, up at the door looking at the, with a puzzled look, looking at this joint. And I go, uh-oh. Next thing I know, Bruce Pearl, please come to the assistant office's <laughs> principal's No room. way. You were kind of, with the long hair and being this athlete, that was kind of your, like, sticking it to him, kind of. Yeah, but I wasn't really sticking it to them as much as I was being who I am. Okay. And and, and that was important. I, I For sure. I believe in what I believe in, and I'm not going to alter from that and I believe in raising the consciousness of the planet and that's what marijuana to me did and that's why I became a big smuggler because the original emphasis the original drive was to raise the consciousness of the planet well let's get into that you're smoking pot um so you obviously you have a dealer at this point in the game yes like I guess when did you start when how did this happen like how, how does one start smuggling an illegal drug at this point i literally started selling nickel bags so we would buy like a pound we'd buy a pound we'd break them into nickel bags and dime bags and ounces and if you bought an ounce you got a free pack of rolling paper (laughs) and we put little sayings in all the dime bags make love not war you know all the sayings of the 60s and we literally sold nickel bags dime bags and ounces and pounds then then we moved up to pounds the demand isn't was insatiable yes right and how you how i became a smuggler was a friend of mine brought a 50 pound bale to my house i had gotten out of it i had stopped you stopped smoking no i was still smoking (laughs) but no we didn't smoke we would smoke like on weekends not every day right and um, to be functional yeah and 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 sometimes after class but mostly it was a weekend thing Mm -hmm. And so the same with LSD. You know, once in a while I do LSD and psilocybin and mescaline. I really liked those mm-hmm. psychedelic trips back then. I wish I could do them again, and one day I will, but not while I'm working, you know. Right. Because I may go move out to the forest and become a hermit and leave my business behind me before it's all finished. <laughs> and then you can you can start doing acid trips again. Or ayahuasca. Or, right. or I think psilocybin is legal now in this state, or psilocybin or mescaline. One I should two. know that, and I don't. I yeah, don't know. It's been past legal for studies. Because, you are correct, yes. And we were also, the, the brand of hippie that I was, we consider ourselves like the intelligentista, the, the guys that studied and were entrepreneurs. And, and we weren't like dirt hippies. We didn't do speed. We didn't do heroin. You know, we didn't you know sleep in the streets. We were, hmm. you know, intellectuals. I get it, yeah. And we weren't the radical activists either. We were in between that. Uh, more more entrepreneurs than anything else. Yeah. At this point, though, you know, you're a teenager, right? Um, mm-hmm. Smoking an illegal drug. In your mind, though, was it something that you were doing wrong? Or did you just think, this is, why Why is this wrong? Oh, did absolutely. Did you question that? Yeah, we, 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 we didn't, we thought it was wrong. We No, first of all, 
even LSD was legal until a certain point, then they made it illegal. Right. So in the beginning years, we were doing a legal drug. Uh, marijuana being illegal was completely ridiculous. You know, to you? To me. It mm-hmm. was like, why? You know, you, you see people getting drunk and killing people in cars and getting in fights, and people are smoking pot, and there's no, there's, we saw it as a war on the hippies and mm-hmm. the alternative cult, counterculture than really a uh, doing something wrong. Okay. So you're, you're buying a pound of pot, selling it, breaking it off, selling it, and then you said someone sold you a 50 what was it 50 no they gave us a 50 back then they came in in bales okay and today they call them square groupers because a lot of times people threw them off the boats and fishermen or people would find Mm. a square grouper and they loved it because they take it dry it and make a lot of money but anyways it was 50 pound bale and he wanted to just store it at my house okay and he said and by the way if you sell any of this you know you can take 10 make 10 dollars a pound and sell it well, the first 50-pound bale, we sold um, maybe half of it. Okay. Then the guy did it again. And at that time, we sold the whole 50-pound bale before he could even blink. And I remember showing my partner at the time, David Tobias, who's now the CEO of another publicly traded company in this sector. Um, I go, look, David, I put, and I have a little baby I under the diapers. We had $1,000. All right. Now, $1,000 back then is... You know, these are nineteen early seventy dollars. Right. It's probably close to like a hundred thousand today. Wow. Money doubles every seven years. So that's how you can calculate it. Okay. And it was like a fortune. Of course. So we found our our niche. The light bulb go off. Light bulb went off, and we said, "This is what we're going to do." So we were partnering up, and we sold a lot of pot just as brokers and dealers. Your partner was who again? David Tobias. David, He's- was he a partner at this time, or did you both kind of go like, "Let's do this together"? He was always a partner. He was, he's like my best friend since sixth grade. Okay. I love it. So. Just all the shenanigans. So you guys, you guys kind of, the light bulb goes off as as we both said, and you realize, first of all, absolute, there's a market for this. Insatiable market. Insatiable market for this. Do you, as far as pricing goes, are you pretty much fair across the board? Or did you guys... No, no, we would. We, we it, there were certain rules and certain norms. Okay, you mark it up ten dollars a pound. Okay. And back then, off the boat, there was two two hundred to two and a quarter. So we'd sell it for ten dollars. Except for the people from who would come down from Philadelphia, and New York, we could actually sell it for twenty five dollars a pound more. Love it. So I love it. But that was the norm. So you guys say, all right, let's do this. Where are you getting the weed from? In the beginning, we were getting it from smugglers. There's a part that is a very important part okay. and a very relevant part. I decided I wanted to move back to the land. You know, this is the 60s. This is part of the mm-hmm. back to the land movement, right? Mm-hmm. We grow, our own, grow our, all our own food. Right. So I moved to Arkansas on 40 acres, and David inherits the business. I said, David, we, we're owed $30,000. Send me half. You keep the rest, and you keep the, 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 all of our customers and suppliers. Okay. So it didn't work. And living out in the woods. I think he sent it to me $20 because, you know, some people don't get paid. Yeah. But three months later, the Back to the Land movement for Bruce Perlowin didn't work because I couldn't afford, I was chopping, I'm a high-performance athlete at that point, mm-hmm. right? I'm chopping wood and trimming trees for a living mm-hmm. and then coming home and fixing up the house in exchange for rent. And after three months of this and my brother-in-law not helping really do anything, I moved back to Florida to, to sell pot. Okay. All right. That's when we're now doing thousands of pounds. David got a new partner, 
Okay. And I partnered up with somebody else, and I sold to him. He sold to me. You know, because back then you'd make a hundred thousand a week if you're if you're making a dime. You're either offloading someone's load, you're bringing in your own loads because you eventually learn to do that, or you're selling someone's load. Okay. And there's always you know giant loads coming in. So are you at this point though? Are you selling? Or are you smuggling? At this both? point, I'm sell I'm selling, and then I started little by little to offload. Because if you have a freighter offshore, and you had a speedboat, you can offload them for between ten and twenty five percent. So I became an offloader. I started buying my own boats. So speedboats for for short runs, and fishing boats were for longer runs. Okay. So I'd get a call in the middle of the night. My freighters, like last night, I got a call. Guy got two hundred thousand acres that he wants us to come harvest. No, I'm sorry, 2,000 acres. And I'm thinking 2,000 acres, does he have any idea how many millions, millions, or at least hundreds of thousands of square feet it's going to cost to grow that? And where is your planning? So the same thing happened back then. The freighter's broken down. The boats didn't get there. They couldn't find it. I needed two pieces of information, how far and how much weight. If it was too far away, I would use my my fishing boats. It was close inshore, like three miles in the international territory. I'd use the speed boats. Wow. And so from the offloading, I then began, and, and sometimes I would broker an offload to other guys that have boats. We all sort of worked together because mm -hmm. there, was, there was no conspiracy where people can just tell on you back then. They had to catch you red-handed. Gotcha. Right? But so we all worked as a team and we all worked as a group and it worked very efficiently and very effectively, similar to what we're trying to do here in, in Oregon mm -hmm. is get everybody working together. And we're actually, uh, unbelievably, because I work in a lot of areas of the country, mm -hmm. this seems to be coming together as a unified, cohesive whole as an industry in the Rogue Valley. Regarding him. Regarding him. Okay. So at this time, you're smuggling the drug into the states, or you're smuggling it out? No, I'm smuggling into into the United States. Um, um, first, I was offloading, and at a certain point, I said to the smugglers, "Look, I'm offloading for you. I'm also selling the load, so I'm getting my 10 to 25 percent. And sometimes I'd hire you, and I pay you 10 percent, and I charge the smuggler 25, so I pick up 15 percent in between. And the key was to get the whole load to sell because you mm -hmm. made 10 dollars a pound on the whole load, and so. I said, I want to be a partner. So they said, fine. So now I'm going down to Colombia, meeting Colombians. Whoa. And partnering up with the smugglers in Florida. Okay. okay. Who are you meeting in Colombia? Like, who are some big names that you're meeting? Oh, nobody. The guy I work with, we just nicknamed him. His name was Gustavo, but we nicknamed him Mike. And he wasn't like Escobar or any of those big giant cartels. Those are the yeah. cocaine guys. Yeah. What I was basically working with was farmers. I was working with nice. farmers, and I was working with the broker to the farmer, you know. And it's really interesting because you go down there, and they have a whole bunch of bodyguards following you everywhere because they don't want – no one's going to hurt you in the marijuana business, but they don't want the next guy to steal their connection because mm. we didn't realize how valuable we were to them as the American sales force. I see. And they were incredibly valuable to us. So it was a really good symbiotic relationship. It's so funny you're telling the story, and all I can think about is the movie Blow with Johnny Depp. I hired George when he got out of prison, by the way. Stop. And I gave him a lot of money. Stop! Wait, hold on. Time out. George, who is George Johnny Young. Depp's the real, The real George Young. You see these pants I'm wearing? Yeah. And you see this shirt? Yeah. Okay. It's made by a company called Hemp Lou, my ex-girlfriend. And when George got out of prison, I, first of all, I gave him ten grand. Okay. I said, George, go fix your teeth. All right. And then we gave another 10 grand. He bought a car that he gave to his daughter. 
Okay. Nice. Then my ex-girlfriend who made these hemp blue clothes, mm -hmm. right? Hemp denim jeans, hemp shirts, was one of the top designer in Los Angeles. Um, and he hired him to be a spokesman for him. We got him a car. She rented him a car. She rented him a condo. You know, it's it's like the brotherhood of smugglers sticking together and helping each other oh out. God, this is so awesome. So you're you're smuggling you're smuggling marijuana into the states. Are you are you just like making serious cash at this point in oh, life? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, like, like how much? Well, in Florida, I did really good. But when I really did good is when, when I didn't like the cocaine cowboys and the shoot. We didn't have guns. We were, we were peaceful right. hippies smuggling marijuana. We didn't have flashy cars. We didn't have gold jewelry. And we didn't have guns. And we didn't right. shoot each other. I, but when the cocaine cowboys reared their ugly head and started really wreaking havoc in South Florida, I got. I didn't like it. It was violent. I moved to California. Mm -hmm. I moved my whole organization to California. Pioneered a new smuggling route from the west coast of Colombia, which most people didn't even know there was a west coast of Colombia, to the west coast of the United States, and brought my boats, a fleet of boats. As the newspaper said, I had a fleet of boats larger than most countries' navies, underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, and still. How many boats did you have? About ninety-seven boats. Oh my gosh! That you owned. That I owned. Everything from, you know, 24-foot speedboats to 150-foot Mickey Tugs, tugboats, you know, 85. My main, my main staple of boats was 65 steel albacore boats. That was the main boat. And you didn't have to offload in those. You can go all the way down. We, we would go down to Costa Rica, uh -huh. wait until the, 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 the pot. And we were competing against California Homegrown, which was still, back then, a very strong, better pot than anything grown in Colombia. Really? So we grew, we flew what's called Punta Rojo, or Red Bud. We would overfly three mountain ranges, drop it on the beach, hired the entire village to go and collect it and store it. When enough was there, like usually 30,000 pounds. In Colombia. In Colombia. Okay. The boat would then leave from Costa Rica, where it was waiting and being refueled and reprovisioned, dip down to Colombia, and then come back underneath the Golden Gate Bridge to a thousand foot concrete pier, which was one of the best offload spots I've ever saw in America. <laughs> we brought in load. See, what we did the same thing I'm doing now. We built infrastructure first, got the boats, got the speedboats, mm -hmm. got the. We tracked every Coast Guard boat in the, in the 800,000 square miles of the Pacific Basin. We had a million dollars of electronic equipment up on Skyline Boulevard so we can track them and we can right. listen to them. We knew who they were following. We tapped all their frequencies, the DEA and FBI and Coast Guard, and we just listened to see if they were following or watching us. Were they ever? No, no. And Crazy. finally, you know, so we built that infrastructure in California, and I knocked it out apart. So how much did I make? I did a billion dollars worth of business in my 20s, and I made $100 million in my 20s doing that. Oh, my gosh. That's insane. But, I mean, listening to you, you knew what you were doing. Yeah. Yeah, you build infrastructure first, and then you just knock it out of the park. We bought boatload after boatload after boatload. It was just automatic routine. Same thing I'm doing now, <laughs> building infrastructure first, and this is the first but year. But legal. But it's all legal, which is right. amazing to me. And I'm actually selling, now people are smoking hemp, so we're positioning ourselves on high-end smokables. I feel like I'm doing it all over again, selling nickel bags, dime bags, ounces, and pre-rolls. Insane. So you bring this fleet to the West Coast, and you're still getting your weed from Colombia. Yes. You're bringing it into the United States. Are you selling it or do you have people selling it? No, I would, everybody was always fighting for who would get to sell the load. So I, gotcha. I had like 
my partners, mm-hmm. which were, one was a PhD in physics and a professor in the University of Ann Arbor, Michigan, or University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He was actually a teacher and his brother who owned the, the bookstore. So Fred and Ned were my partners. Fred and Ned? Yeah, Fred and Ned, sure. <laughs> Unfortunately, they both died of, you know, oh. old age, you know. But they now. were your partners at the time. They were my partners. Remember, we're like the intelligentistas and the entrepreneurs. Yes. Yeah, Fred so got, and Ned and Bruce. So you got a PhD and, a, and Ned's bookstore. Right, so they sold all the you know the, the the books to the college kids you know and then mm-hmm. you return and you buy them used right. you know that model, and they were my partners, and I got twenty five percent for doing the offload and then we split the rest fifty okay. fifty. Okay. So they would get so we would offload a boat. I could offload a boat in forty seven minutes. I would have that boat no in forty three minutes. I would have that boat refueled, the two speed boats gone, the two trucks gone, everybody off the dock, the, the surveillance yacht back, you know, I was in the middle of the bay watching everything and all my go- lookouts all over, all gone in 57 minutes in less than one hour. Wow. It was like a crack military operation. Yeah. And everything would be gone except for one guy who would stay until the light to make sure there's no buds on the, the dock. We would drive it to our stash houses, two or three different stash houses. We'd work all night without sleeping, packing it up, putting it in the vans. First light, because you don't want to be out in three or four in the morning with truckfuls of marijuana. No, nope, highly wait. suspicious. Right, the only one out, we used to say the only one out are, are the cops and the criminals, you know, yep. three in the morning. <laughs> That's so true. That's <laughs> still true. <laughs> right, so, so we'd wait till the normal traffic patterns and everything would be gone. 21 days later, we were we fronted everything. We never, ever, there was no money up front like there is today. Mm-hmm. Everything was fronted. Three weeks later, everybody was paid off. The whole load was done. The Columbians were paid and we were, I used to try and have three or four, actually four loads going at all times. Okay. So either a boat was going down, one was coming up, one was in Costa Rica, mm-hmm. and one was getting ready to go. So it's just constant. Yeah. How long are you doing this for? About four years, between three and four years before I finally got busted. How did you get busted? Fred and Ned got busted on Fred a and s- Ned. separate case. Dang it, Fred and Ned. And they squ- turned, they squealed. They squealed on you? Yeah. Well, oh, man. And, and I, I, no. And then, then the guys that were laundering my money all over the world out of Florida, they got busted on a separate case and they squealed on me. So at this point, though, our. Law enforcement, DEA, FBI, are they just like, who is Bruce? I mean, were you? They were sort of looking because in the documentary, CBC documentary, which is the most watched documentary in CBC history, which I was in a 10-minute segment on, mm-hmm. 23 million people watched it the first time it aired. All right, And, it's, and that, this is on what? The documentary? Uh, CNBC documentary called Marijuana Inside America's Pot Industry. Mm, okay. I, and I was a 10-minute segment. They wanted to film me about, you know, my smuggling operation. Of course. They were covering the Emerald Triangle. Right. And I was living in Ukiah, so I was the smuggler of that error. And so, but they didn't expect 23 million people to watch it the first night. And they just aired it over and over and over again. So mm-hmm. most people in the industry know me because they saw me in that documentary. It's like 11 years old now, that documentary. Right. I'm just picturing, though, that like, you know, this operation is going on. Do they have a clue of how big yeah, it is? Yeah, in that documentary, okay. what I went to do, they said I left my notebook in the Denny's restaurant, and they turned that over to the FBI. Now, the notebook is not what busted me. It was just a bunch of coded 
things that looks like somebody's selling a lot of pounds. There's no names. There was, but if you looked at it, it's somebody selling some a lot of weight here. It was just one trip. So, but they can't say we busted them for snitches. That's against their rule. They mm-hmm. can never say it. So they blamed it on the notebook. It makes a better story, anyways. That it I, does. Yeah. I left my notebook in there. Right. And, uh, but that's not how it happened. The notebook. So they knew that there was a big smuggler. Mm-hmm. They had two separate investigations going on, one in Florida for the money laundering guys and one in California for, and, and out of Ann Arbor, Michigan with Fred and Ned. Right. And they didn't know it was, they had like 125 agents investigating the Prolon organization. And then they realized it's just one giant organization. Wow. And so finally with them cooperating and then little by little, they would go to somebody and say, look, you're gonna to go to jail for 10 years or for life if you don't cooperate. And it ended up being about 125 people cooperating against me. Wow. And then it came to me, are you gonna cooperate? I could have literally walked out of jail, kept my multi-million dollar house in Ukiah, kept a, a certain amount of money, had to give up the docks and the planes and the boats sure. and stuff. And I wouldn't do it. And I said, no. And my ex, my wife at the time said, you know, your son is going to grow up without you. And I said, that does not give me the right to have 100 sons grow up without 100 fathers. Mm. I did the crime. I'll do the time. You know, it, it wasn't a mafia code of honor. It was my code. Mm. My code is if you work for me, I'm not going to rat you out. Wow. And I did my time. So were you upset with, with Ned and Fred? No. I was not upset because anyone who says, I thought it was very hypocritical because when I, when you're in prison, all the rats never met their rats and they always blame, say, oh, that guy's a rat, all right? Nobody knows what they're gonna do because it was, it was really weird. The people I thought would never talk mm-hmm. did and the people I thought would talk didn't. So you never can tell what somebody's, what's gonna happen at that moment and I don't think I have the right to judge them. I liked them to the day they passed away. I thought mm-hmm. they were great guys. And just because they rolled over on people, you know, maybe John Doe would, or maybe this guy would. You don't know. What if his mother's dying and, and they, they don't want to see their mother? They want to, don't want to disappear and go to jail with the mother. Or maybe they have kids and maybe they're bonded to their kids, you know, a lot more than maybe I was. Mm-hmm. But I don't blame people for that. I think it's the wrong thing to do. I don't think it's right, but I'm not one of these guys that judges and say, oh, you ratted out, you're, you know. It's very ethical. Yeah, I Quite just, ethical. I, I always liked them. So you were married at the time you got arrested. Sort of. I mean, Becky and I were like husband and wife, mm-hmm. and we had a baby together. Mm-hmm. I delivered my baby at home. Nice. Did yeah. she know about this? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you kind of yeah. have to, right? Yeah. No, <laughs> she, she knew what we were doing, and uh, she's a great mother, a great person, and uh and then when I left, we were sort of splitting up. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you don't run that kind of a business and focus on it all the time. And a wife usually wants your attention at home. A little bit. You know, not being a lunatic marketing guy, always smuggling, never stopping, constantly expanding. Yeah. You know, so. So she was probably a little tired of you. <laughs> yeah, she was. And, and, you know, and at this point, uh-huh. I realized I make a horrible boyfriend or a horrible husband because I'm married to my work. And, mm. I, you know, I have two great kids. I mm-hmm. work with both my sons. They're both awesome. in the business. I, How old was your kiddo when you got arrested? The youngest one had just turned two. It was his second oh, birthday. Well, that's when I was arrested, but that, that was for a trial that I went for a Miami smuggle, which I ended up getting probation. 
Okay. I, I actually went to court and got probation and then, no, I got a hung jury. And then rather than go to court a second time, I pled guilty because they gave me 30 months probation and I went back to smuggling pot on the West Coast. So when you were arrested though, was there, was it a big show or? It was a big show. Ooh, let's talk about it. What happened? Do you remember the day? No, because uh, I got arrested twice. <laughs> Once for the future from Florida, then the second time for the big smuggle in California. Did you know they were coming after you? I saw indications of it. Okay. I didn't know that Fred and Ned had rolled over. I didn't know that Charlie and Florida had laundered my money all over the world had rolled over. They keep it pretty quiet. They're pretty sneaky Yeah. and uh, good at what they do, just like I was good at what I do. Sure. And, you know, the headlines... FBI swoops down on Pearl one again, you know, and they found like a quarter million dollars of silver coins in my basement. Oh man! And um, so now I'm gonna actually I'm actually it was a, like they, they called it an armed fortress. It wasn't an armed fortress. Your house? I, yeah. Okay. I mean, it sort of was an armed fortress, but it was it was a beautiful home. I spent three million nineteen eighty dollars fixing it up. I'm buying it back. Are you really? A, a grower actually bought it to sell back to me because he knew it was mine and he knew the story and he knew I delivered my son there. So after the harvest this year, I'm buying my Ukiah house back. I love that. And we'll do one of my Veteran Village Kins communities or abused women and children's kins communities in Lake County is what my plan is because we plan to expand these these hemp growing communities that I'm building all over America. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, congratulations on buying that house back. So let's talk about the day you were arrested. Where were okay. you? I was actually, one of my friends met me, he said, Bruce, you're really out of control. You need to start doing yoga. <laughs> okay, okay, and this guy, he's in the seed business now, Ventura Seeds. If anyone wants some good seeds, I recommend Ventura, Ventura Seeds. Ventura Seeds, there you go. Okay, so anyways, Al says to me, uh, Al Ellis, he goes, Bruce, you need to start doing yoga, and he introduces me to Yogi Bhajan. All right, now mm -hmm. that's the Kundalini Yoga group. They were the, the, the turbans and they okay. do Kundalini Yoga and they're all vegetarians. They're very, very healthy. Okay. And he goes, if you go to a white yoga tantric course, you know, which is a, a yoga course where the men line up and the women line up and you do these really sort of hard exercises, uh -huh. he goes, it's worth 10 years of meditation. Wow. I go, wow, I'm in. So I went to every single white yoga tantric course that Yogi Bhajan did where I went, Alaska, Amsterdam, wherever it was, Canada, Mexico right. City, and I was on my way to my 16th white yoga tantra course when I got busted, and I was busted in Chicago on my way somewhere. I forget where it was, but okay. it was, you know, Chicago was a layover. They walked on the plane. They never drew guns. They said, are you Bruce Prime? Said, yeah, well, you're under arrest with the FBI and IRS, and okay. there's arrests being made all over the country right now, and... Uh, you know, in an effort to get me to get scared and get talked. And I said, okay, you know, good. I get to go to, to jail and meditate for 10 years. No I, way. <laughs> That's so funny. So there was a trial. No. What no happened trial? in that particular case, you know, I was on $5 million bail. I was not going to bail out like I did the first time. Mm -hmm. And I had 125 people testify against me. Oh, man. And so I said, okay, I will not go to trial and cost the government a lot of money. And I will forfeit. I'll give up assets. I will not give up people. And in my deal, in my plea agreement, I said, but I want, this is what I want, to not go to trial. Because, you know, they can always lose a trial, although it was unlikely with 125 people on their side. <laughs> I said, I want you to not prosecute my brother. They go, we, that's okay. we're okay with that because he would never have done this if it wasn't for Big Brother being involved. And I don't want you to prosecute my wife. 
you know, because mm. they were going to charge her. And they said, we can live with that. And my, one of my guys, I said, I want him, to, they had him four counts of smuggle. I said, he, I couldn't cut him off. They, wouldn't. they said, no, we can't not prosecute him. Okay. I said, we'll just give him one charge then. And they said, and that was one five-year charge, which you do three years or something. So they agreed to that. And, and then you could have all the assets and they got everything, mm. you know. You're like the nicest smuggler on the planet. I'm the nicest guy, one of the nicest guys on the planet. I've given away $25 million of my stock to nonprofits. Aw, that's I so nice. I still do this today. The real Patch Adams, who's building a free hospital in West Virginia. Yeah. Okay, I'm his largest donor. Keepers of the Wild, largest mm -hmm. wildlife sanctuary, I'm their largest donor. Michael Beckwith, the guy who was in The Secret, I'm one of his largest donors. Daniel Brinkley, uh, 8,000 veterans died holding hands with one of his hospice leaders in veterans hospitals mm -hmm. so they don't die alone. Mm -hmm. I'm his largest donor. Why are you giving so much money away? I wasn't money, it was stock. How, why so are you giving easy. so much stock away? Well, if you want to change the world, you can't, uh, here's the rule, my rule. Okay. If you want to change the rule, fund the people that are going to change the world. So true. Your, your job description just got 10,000 times easier. I don't know how to change the healthcare medical field. Patch Adams does. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to save rescued tigers and bears and lions. Keepers of the Wild does. Right, right. And so I, in the beginning, I funded the people that were going to change the world, helped a lot of them. Now, the coup of all coups, or one of the coups of all coups, is last year, I gave Patch Adams on his land 1,200 clones. They grew the clones. They grew hemp. They sold it, made $50,000 to build a free hospital. This year, they're growing three acres. Beautiful. So we taught a we taught them how to fish. That's amazing. And That's they're amazing. actually growing the hemp. Yeah. And now hemp, see to me, hemp has such a broad application. I say hemp stand, I, you know, I make, I'm a marketing guy, so I make up things, you know, marketing stories and marketing so To me, hemp stands for Humanitary Empowerment Monetary Program. We can use the money that we raise to hemp to make the back to the land movement emerge again and survive we can have the small family farm emerge in america again uh, yeah. because of hemp and we can fund all the nonprofits. i love it so we're going to talk about that i'm writing it down so i don't forget uh let's go back though to prison you go to prison mm -hmm. where where do you go to prison in prison i was in heaven <laughs> okay I go, finally, I get to, there I get was, to rest. I get to rest. Not only do I get to rest, uh, I never could go to college. I actually tried to go to Day Junior College mm -hmm. in North Miami seven times and couldn't afford it because I had a new, a young wife and a new baby. Okay. I had a drop out. I ended up with seven credits total out of seven tries and go back to selling pot. Right. I didn't have the money to, to afford to go to college. Now I can go to college because they actually taught college in prison. In prison. I can read all the books. Uh, there was one. What prison are you at? Okay. Well, I started off in county jail. Okay. I, and county jail sort of can be rough. But at that point, I had long hair, long beard, and I would sit on my bunk and meditate and go, eight times on the exhale. And you're mostly with you know, you know, rough, a rough group in county right. jail. And they would say, we don't know who he is, we don't know what he is, but don't mess with that guy, he's gonna voodoo you. I love it, I love it. So, so you were just like, no one touched no you. No one touched me, and because I was a big smuggler and had newspaper articles about me, they respected me. Nice. Okay, so county jail for about a year, okay. and finally I pled guilty because I realized you know I wasn't going to win in trial, mm -hmm. and then I went to Texarkana, and in Texarkana it was all male. I found out there was co-ed prisons, 
And there was four of them in America from the one bureau, one head of the Bureau of Prisons to try to experiment, and he implemented co-ed prisons. Okay. And the new head was reversing that. But so there were still two of them left. I go, there's a co-ed prison? I go, well, where are they? And one was in Pleasanton, which is right near my home. So they're supposed to house you as close to home as possible so you can get visits from your family. Mm. And I was medium security, so okay. I had a fit of medium security. And everyone, there was no other medium security facility because other people who had snitched on me, they got a little bit of time, three or four years. I got 15 years, of which I did nine. Back then, you only did two-thirds of your time. And so Pleasanton was available for me to go to because it was right near my home where Becky and my son okay. Aubrey lived, or Reese lived. And so so I got to go to a co-ed prison. I mean, it was hysterical. My best friends were spies, assassins, terrorists, hijackers, jewelthies, bank robbers, smugglers, and that's just the women. <laughs> in fact, you, you met someone in prison. Yes. I Well, I actually had a crush on the Puerto Rican terrorists, but she didn't like me. She liked Mikey, the other smuggler. And uh, so I, the second person that I liked the most was um, Svetlana Ogorodikova, who was the most watched 60 Minutes in the history of that show. She made the dec- best of 60 Minutes for a decade of the 80s. Mike Walsh remembers 25 years of 60 Minutes and 35 years of 60 Minutes. She was convicted of espionage. She was a real Russian spy. A real Russian spy. A gorgeous real <laughs> Russian spy. And you guys were an item. Yes, we were okay. boyfriend and girlfriend. We in prison. We yeah, we were in prison. We got this. You know, it was really hysterical in prison. It is this 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 is doesn't even sound true, Bruce. Oh, and, and I mean, you know, I say assassin, the lady that tried and shoot Ford. She uh, she Sarah, was in the prison with you. Yes, yeah, Sarah Jane Moore. She was in prison with us. Oh, okay, Manan Sheila from the big Rajneesh Purim. No Manan way. Sheila was in prison with us. In fact, Manan Sheila married Svetlana and I because she was legally empowered as a minister of, of that religion to marry us. This is this is this can't be true. So we call ourselves the King and Spy. I love it. I love it. Because I'm the King of Pot and she was the Russian Spy, and soon they'll be in front. That'll be one of the. King of Hemp pre-rolls. I'm putting all the old smugglers on the pre-rolls that I'm launching because I want to give them royalties. Oh, okay. So, the so they're going to the be black, getting some money. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, the guy from the. That's why I'm doing it. Hmm. So I'm following. I made this story up, right? Just okay. I'm following the Brotherhood of Marijuana Smugglers Handbook of Codes. Code number one: No smuggler shall die broke. Fantastic. So Fantastic. I put the head of the Black Tuna Gang, the Daring Dashing Smith Brothers, uh, Billy Hayes from the movie uh, Midnight Express. Uh-huh. So the first pre-roll will be the King of Hemp. The second one will be called Midnight Express, and Billy will get his residual. He was the guy that was arrested in Turkey. I don't know if you saw that movie. Mm. Yeah, you're a little bit young for that. It was a 40-year-old movie. It was Oliver Stone's first movie, by the way. Okay. I've heard of it. I just haven't seen Won it. Won two Academy Awards. And yeah. so, so what I didn't realize when I told all these guys I'm going to, you know, because you go to prison, you come out, you're broke. You know? Yeah. I was broke when I came out of prison. So were all of them. So was George. That's why we all tend to help each other. I mean, when I got out of prison, uh, the Daring and Dashing Smith, that was Daryl Smith, he loaned me $12,000 because my mom needed money. So we, you know, it's like a brotherhood. Yeah. You well, know? you helped George Young. Yeah. When and, he got out of prison. And I plan, I haven't told George yet. I've called him and I'm going to put him in the front cover because I want to make George money too. I, but How I've, old is George now? He's really old. He's like um, close to 80. 
he's it's, like 10 years older than me. Are you surprised that he's still around? No, he, you know, what, one of the things that happens in prison is it preserves you. You don't, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't do drugs, you don't go out all night, you, you tend to work out. I mean, Lana and I, Svetlana and I walked 10 miles every night, and that was not working out. That was walking two and a half hours, 15 minutes a mile. Right? We walked 10 miles every single night. Yeah, you're, that's true. You really are taking care of your sleeping. You're sleeping the same time. You eat the same time. You exercise the same time. You study. I got five college degrees, made straight A's, made the national dean's list, the president's list. I made one B the entire time. Wow. And all A's. Um, I read 100 books a year. I was in heaven. Yeah, sounds like it. You know? And I got to, you know, we're sneaking around trying to kiss each other, and the guards are sneaking around trying to catch us. Love so it. it's sort of, sort of. It's funny. almost like you're in like college. Yeah, it was like college. I mean, you know, without all the partying and whatnot, but. And then some incredible things happened, like the helicopter escape. One guy got out of prison. He came back, flew a helicopter, landed in the field, picked up his girlfriend, and flew off. No to way. To the cheers of everybody in the prison except the police. Did they get caught? <laughs> Yeah, they eventually got eventually. caught. So I'm just curious, any other people in prison with you that listeners would know? Oh, yeah. Well, um, the lady from the, the, the black, the lady that caused all the killings in the cocaine cowboy wars um, was her, Gazilda Blanco. Gazilda mm-hmm. was with me. And Lana. She, I, 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 I'm divorced from Lana, but I take care of her. You know, she, she. So she's still around. She's still around. She gets whatever she wants. She lives in a beautiful house. In fact, she's gonna. I'm gonna start teaching her how to grow hemp because they just made hemp legal in Arizona. So I'm gonna buy a greenhouse and show her how to grow hemp. Okay. So she'll have a good income. Uh, although she had a good income when I left her. Yeah. But, um, anyways, so um, so we had her, and she says, "Oh, she was a sweet lady, <laughs> Lana. She she had 200 people murdered." She's a sweet lady. She was a nice lady. Well, see, in prison, you're not drinking and snorting cocaine and doing quaaludes or whatever. So your brain's straight. Your, your brain's straight. Yeah. And she was a sweet lady. Right. <laughs> you know, without all that other stuff. So you get out of prison. What year is this when you get out? Um, I got out of, I'm not sure. I have to look at my, uh, at my, um, my, uh, my bio. But it's somewhere around 85. Okay, okay. Um, you and uh, Lana are married. Yeah, I actually waited three years for her to get out of prison. Did you? And then, you know, because she's my wife. Yeah. You know, and that's hard at that age, you know, but I'm a workaholic. Mm-hmm. So I started businesses. I started phone card business. The first time a retail store put their logo on a phone card was 7-Eleven. We did the original 7-Eleven phone card and about everything else in that industry, which has now came and went. Right. So I tend to be on the forefront of industries. Yes. You know, and if I'm not on the forefront, I pioneer a new part of the industry, like Pioneer New Smuggling Route from West Coast of Columbia to West Coast of the United States. Wait, you call yourself a visionary. I am a visionary, yes. Yeah. So let's, I, I know we're going to fast forward through a lot of stuff here, but when does hemp kind of come at you? After the documentary, mm-hmm. I Don, the largest marijuana smuggler in West Coast history, that's why I never went to my head that I'm a big smuggler, you know, and I got on TV, because... He was so big. He was the largest marijuana smuggler in U.S. history, Don Steinberg. The book, The Underground Empire, is about him. He made me look like I was selling nickel bags at McDonald's. (laughs) He was that big. Wow. So we partnered up. 
Okay. Okay. And we did phone cards together. We did international. That was Global Com 2000. Then we did international telecom together. That was One World Communication. Mm-hmm. And the third company, he had. We had. We were doing different things because my parole officer wouldn't let me move when he moved the company. So I had to stay in Northern California. Right. And he moved on. So he has a company called Club VivaNet, selling debit cards at this time, which was public. So I go back to Florida to start working with him. They fly mm-hmm. me out. We do the CNBC documentary. And all of a sudden, the phone's exploding. Really? Because medical marijuana is a big thing. Yeah. You know, 23 million people watched it, all right? Right. And so, and they kept airing it. They were airing it sometimes three times a day. And so... He said, why don't we change the name from Club Evenet to Marijuana Inc. or Medical Marijuana Inc. get back into the industry. We'll do something. We won't touch the herb because they'll go after us. You know, right. two of the America's largest marijuana smugglers doing the first publicly they're, traded company. They're watching you. <laughs> yeah, they're not going to like that. No. So we ask our investors and our investors, because they didn't know. Don had never told them the background. Mm-hmm. his background. So we told them my background and Don's background. He says, what if we change the name to marijuana? And they got all excited about it. And I said to the guy, one of us, I go, Richard, why are you so excited? I know you gave the okay and we're gonna do it. We're gonna do a name change. And he goes, do you even breathe the word marijuana on the public company? He goes, your stock will go through the roof. He goes, they took a company public in Canada. Now this is 15 years ago. Yeah. And maybe 16. And, and the guy got on national TV and he said what they were doing, they sold $32 million of stock in one day. So he was all for it, and that was why. He said, you're gonna have a runaway stock if you do this. And sure enough, we were at four cents. We changed the name from Club Vivanet to Medical Marijuana Inc., became the first publicly traded company in that whole sector. Yeah. And we went from four cents all the way up to 69 cents. Wow. I thought that was normal. Because no. that's, the phone card company grew that way. The, the, the One World Communications grew that way. Network marketing, I hold five world's records in network marketing, grew that way. My marijuana organization grew that way. Everything I did grew that way. I didn't know how unusual that is. Mm. You know? so, but we never got anywhere. We really couldn't get any grounding. We didn't know where to position ourselves. There was so much opportunity. And Don and I fought like cats and dogs. Gotcha. We really fought all the time about everything. And so you, know, you got two kingpins. You got two like... Uh-huh. Alpha male primes. Uh-huh. We're not alpha males. We run organizations of alpha males. Right. <laughs> so two of us. You know, I remember one time walk across the room, pointing at him. You know, say, and then cussing and yelling uh-huh. at him. And he just looked at me. And goes, I love it when you talk that way. Awesome. That's so good. So we finally sold that. We're going to actually fire him. The board directors are going to fire him. And um, but then we sold. We end up instead of doing that, we sold David Tobias, my best friend. Right? Yes. Found the guy to buy the company, so he bought the company, and I started Hemp Inc. And that was about eleven years ago. Okay. Why did you start Hemp Inc.? I saw Hemp Inc. I'm a visionary as yeah. the future. Hemp. You saw hemp as the future. Hemp as the future. Yeah. What I saw back then. This is long before the word CBD was even in sure. the vocabulary. I don't even think there was CBDs in the United States at the time because because the guy we sold it to brought the first batch of CBDs from China and it was a hundred thousand a kilo for pure crystal isolate. Wow. Right. That's how long ago this was. So, but I said, you know something, hemp plastics, just one of the 25,000 things you can make out of hemp is gonna be bigger than all of medical marijuana and recreational marijuana put together. So I went into it thinking hemp plastics, hemp wood, hemp clothing, like Mm -hmm. I'm wearing a hemp shirt, I'm wearing hemp jeans, I'm wearing hemp shoes. Your wallets. My wallets, hemp, my business cards, hemp paper. 
And think about the environmental impact. I, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing. Let alone hemp is a superfood. You know, you got hemp seeds, you have hemp protein, you have, you know, hemp oil, and it also is healing. We had a, we launched a, a product line, and we have with hemp oil, and this stuff is incredible. Mm-hmm. Topically, for mm-hmm. scars and, 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 mm-hmm. and bruises, it's like this miracle plan. It, you know, we just did this story, and I interviewed you for it, and just thinking about all of this, it almost sounds like it's too good, It's this plant's too good to be true. It is too good to be true, and you wonder why it's been illegal all these years. Yeah. It's really weird. It is weird. That the, that, that the one plant that can solve probably a good 80% of the problems on this planet has been illegal all these years. We're all cannabinoid deficient. We didn't even know you had an endocannabinoid system until, what, 10 years ago, mm-hmm. nine years ago? Yeah. The guy won the Nobel Prize, some Nobel Prize for discovering that. Mm-hmm. So we're all deficient. So that's why CBDs work so good is because we're missing, miss, we're missing a critical element. So it may not be the CBDs that are curing you. It may just be your body getting into harmony from this missing element. It used to be in the mm-hmm. meat because of the chickens you see eat hemp seeds and the cattle you see eat grazed on hemp. And, and the, probably the fish got it somehow and birds got it. So we are so cannabinoid deficient. Mm. I really believe that when we become defa- can, endocannabinoid uh, fulfilled, you know, and yeah. we will become a more compassionate species. Really? I think it's a missing element. Of, you think it'll actually change brain function? I do. I, I actually think it, it, change, it will change brain function. I mean, you think of some of the weird things. It mends bones quicker. There's, I read a study about this. This is a scientific study. This isn't, you know, you know hearsay because we read the studies. We're a public company. We have to get to the facts and know what's real science, what isn't real science. And within calcium, magnesium, but if an older woman falls down and breaks a bone, which is very common in mm-hmm. the elderly, you know, and... I don't know why women but fall down more than men, but men fall down break bones too, but women seem to do it more. They, um, the, I th- CBDs will make the bones mend and it'll be stronger than before the break. That's a real study, okay? Chickens, that I, we were gonna do this study ourselves, but then the, the, I think the, the Japanese did it. Okay. Just do it. If you feed hemp seeds to chicken, you're gonna have more omega-3 fatty acids in the chicken egg. The chicken egg now is more healthy. So. And the fact that it was illegal, I believe, is just sort of like a overall symptom of the planet. I think we do everything perfectly in this world, perfectly backwards. Well, well, if, if marijuana, cannabis, is illegal, and this is the cannabis plant, just the THC is low. Right. I mean, it makes sense that as humans, it's still, I mean, there's still a stigma with marijuana, with cannabis now, that people, even though it's legal and you can smoke it and you can buy it, I mean, there's still people who are like, I don't know. There is still a lot of people that are like that. And so I go back to my particular rule. If you want to change the world, you better make a lot of people a lot of money or it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny that the stigma changed so much after the 2018 farm bill made hemp legal all of a sudden farmers you know they don't want to break the law as a group no 
And, you know, my generation couldn't care less. You know, we decided what we thought, excuse me, what we thought was right and what was wrong. Mm -hmm. And we thought marijuana was right and we thought that it was okay. Sure. And, you know, and we thought back then, you know, free sex was was okay. You know, whether even though it doesn't work, you know, you know, we, we tried it. it you know, open marriages don't work, guys. Okay. I mean, they work for some people. They, they do. Yeah, there, there's all kinds of different subgroups and subcultures that work sure, and make sure. something work. But um, there is this, still this big stigma, though I just did read a study that the most used group of smoking cannabis, marijuana cannabis, is 55 and older, my generation. Really? Well, you know, I'll take, let's take my ex-girlfriend and, and one of my personal assistants, or project managers, actually. Mm-hmm. They were both school teachers. Uh-huh. They quit smoking pot. Believe me, they smoked a lot of pot when we were growing up. I grew up with them since uh, third grade, right. too. You know, third and sixth grade. And um, and they didn't, they stopped. One stopped when they she got pregnant, and she mm-hmm. didn't want to, she stopped everything. Mm-hmm. You know, no more cocaine, no more quaaludes, mm-hmm. no more pot. And then they became teachers, and they both didn't want to lose their job. And this is the same story with a lot of professions, from a truck driver to a worker in my generations. Well, guess what? We're all retired. Mm-hmm. So we're tending, and I, I thought that this was, I was wondering if this was going to happen. I was, will we go back to our drug of choice, which is marijuana? marijuana. And sure enough, both of those two retired teachers are now smoking pot. Right. And now they're smoking it at night before they go to bed because they, they, they're not quite used to this strong, incredibly powerful homegrown sure. and they're not used to wake and baking and that's not what we do. It was just, it's very therapeutic, you know, mm-hmm. when you get 55 and older, that's when all of a sudden you don't know this yet, Trish, but you got aches and pains coming. Yes. And you're I'm, gonna get old. <laughs> no, the aches and pains are starting, believe me. So with Hemp Inc., what is your, what is your goal with this business? It's pretty comprehensive. Um, we have like nine divisions. So we've built the largest hemp processing facility in the Western Hemisphere, and that's for industrial products. Where is that? That's in North Carolina, in okay. Spring Hope, North Carolina. We literally, a decorticator, decorticate means strip the bark off of the outside of a plant, okay. and then you use that for fiber. Okay. So we started to build that because CBDs didn't exist, and, and we were going to make hemp fiber, and then the herd, the center of the plant, mm-hmm. we were going to use it for uh, two things. When you grind it up to 20 mesh, it's a great oil spill cleanup. So mm-hmm. they use that. The previous manufacturers used that in the um, the Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Interesting. Now, they wouldn't let them use it out there in the field. They dropped a chemical that made the oil go to the bottom of the ocean. The oil's still there. You just can't see it. Mm-hmm. But they used it at a wildlife preserve, and animals were literally rolling around in the canaf and it was taking the oil off of their skin and saved a lot of animals mm-hmm. because canaf has an enzyme that actually eats oil so it makes a great oil spill cleanup okay then if we grind it a little bit further the same canaf now canaf is a separate plant okay so what we did because hemp was not legal to grow in north carolina when we started that plant if i waited for legalization i'd be too late so we started we knew we'd add hemp to the formula now so now we have a, a canaf hemp blend I, the second thing is lost circulation material. When you grow up, you grind it up to 200 to 325 mesh, you sell it to the big oil companies. And what that means is 
is when you drill a well, you have three things. Major. You have a diamond tip oil bit, okay. you have a lubricant that keeps that bit from burning up, yep. and then when you drill through cracks and fissures in the earth, that lubricant leaks out, so you need a lost circulation material, or LCM, to block the plug those cracks and fissures. Well, right now, the no main LCM is a chemical concoction that they use to block those cracks and fissures, and if it happens to lead to an aquifer, we're now poisoning the aquifer way down in the you know, from yes. 100,000 to who knows how many feet deep in the earth. So we have the only natural alternative lost circulation material on the market, separate than one company in Indonesia that uses ground up bamboo. So those are the two products that we make there. And we just added a third one, which has now made me my own hero. Okay. What's that? It's, we're grinding up the hemp herd that's coming in from Europe. Today it's coming in from Europe, and but now we're growing 50 acres right next to the plant. All right. And we um, we're grinding it up to and we're selling it to make to another company that's making hemp bioplastics. Hemp bioplastics, which is that's kind of what started all of this, right? Plastics. Exactly. That's what was in my head. It was a hemp bioplastics. And now it's happening. And now it's happening. So what happened with the decorticator was taking so long. The guy said it'll take nine months and 1.2 million. Mm -hmm. 20 million dollars and three and a half years later, we still weren't done with the decorticator because we bought it, but we had to disassemble it, move it to a new location, reassemble mm -hmm. it. So one day I said to him, what happens if we throw the whole canaf plant in the grinder and grind that up with the fiber in there? He said, I don't know, we never tried it. So he tried it and it worked. I said, stop building the decorticator, we're 90% done but we want to make, we have to make money and start grinding up the, the whole plant. Okay. So we grind up the whole plant with the fiber in it and it works just as good as the lost circulation material. I'll now circle back around, finish the decorticator because I want to get hemp fiber going and now we have a use for the herd for bioplastics that we want to grow in America and not have to import it from Europe. Yes, yes. Um, and the hemp plastics are actually biodegradable. They're completely 100% biodegradable. Now, we're selling it to a company that's making the pellets, and they'll sell it to a company with a mold to make straws or to make uh, covers for iPhones or to make anything that's plastic. Plastics, too, you know, you're never going to clean up the oceans. It's right. never going to happen. You can pick up as many boats out there, clean up as many crews, cleaning up the beaches until you stop feeding the oceans, the plastic. Yeah. So the hemp bioplastics will eliminate that. And once I build it, you know, because what's happening now, I see there's hemp wood now. There's a, a plant in Kentucky making hemp two by fours. Mm -hmm. So I do eco villages. So I want to buy all their hemp, hemp two by fours because I do eco villages to grow my hemp on. Right. And uh, so the but the, the bioplastics is a good. Once I'll do it, then the guys with trillions of dollars will come in and put in plants and say, wow, it's like the four minute mile, right? Nobody could break the four minute mile. One guy broke it after uh, hundreds of years and the next two years, 50 people broke it. So it's the same kind of thing. Once we demonstrate proof of concept, everybody, because we could use 50 plants like mine in North Carolina in this country, if not 5,000 of them. Do you think you're changing the world? Yes, I do. At this point, yes. If I died tomorrow, I would be happy with what I started with the Patch Adams and with the Keepers of the Wild and the, and, and the Eco Village that's, you know, that you can see the design. It's really there. It's not just yeah. an idea on yeah. paper. Um, and we have live streaming video cameras up on, on that one so the whole world can see what we do. Um, yes, I do. And you're changing it with hemp. I'm changing it with hemp, absolutely. Mm. That's pretty fascinating. And it's not just me, by the way. It's us. 
It's all of us. Right. I have to tip my hat to all the activists out there, all the people, the lobbyists, the people that put on the shows, the expos, the farmers. It's the most incredible. And now we got all the billionaire and billionaire hedge funds wanting to jump into the game and the bankers because there's so much money in it. So yeah. it's a really unique blend of what I call coopetition. We're all working together and all everybody wants in this industry it's the fastest growth industry on earth yeah i can so, see that so yes i did and and i started the first company now so because we were there it would have happened without me it just happened sooner nice. because i was there i set the example now there's like 300 350 publicly traded companies and do you see you know i think we're all sort of learning about hemp a lot of us are are learning more and more and more about it do you see this just, I mean, obviously, yes, it's one of the fastest growing industries just taking off from here? Yes. This year, you're going to see a lot of tears, though. How, how so? 60%. I thought 50%. It was my judgment going all over America. But we had this incredible speaker, Peter's name, and I listened to him. He was probably the best speaker I've heard in 15 years. And he's a lobbyist. He goes to a lot more places mm -hmm. than I go to. And his prediction, he says, I've never seen so many farmers plant something and have no clue how to harvest it. Yikes. I, and he said 60% of the crop will never go to harvest. I'll give you an example. A guy, okay, we're going 40 acres. That's a million pounds, wet pounds, not dry mm -hmm. pounds. But you've got to hang a million pounds of biomass. And it's giant buildings, and you, we're, we're making like a rack every 40 seconds. A rack is welded together. That's how fast we're making these racks. Right. Just to dry it. And this is only 40 acres. A guy calls me today. Today. Says, Bruce, I have 2,000 acres of hemp. I want to know if you can come harvest it for me. I'm thinking, where was your ex your exit strategy or your end game yeah. when you planted that 2,000 acres? He's not going to – he'll be lucky to harvest 50 because I know how many buildings there are in Oregon, and there's not enough empty buildings to be able to build racking mm -hmm. and heating to dry the stuff. What's that phrase, we put the cart before the horse? People just thought it was, this is not like potatoes or sweet, you know, or, or, or any other crop, corn, anything you grow. It's, they think it's a weed. Yeah, the old hemp, the tall, skinny stuff that they make textiles with is like a weed. But high CBD hemp is more like growing an orchid than growing a weed. Mm -hmm. So they didn't know, the guys that do know how to grow didn't know how to scale up. Gotcha. So we're going to have a lot of tears, and we're going to have a lot of successes, and we're on a big learning curve, and that's why we've done... And you said, you got to do it to learn. Yeah, and that's why we do the Hemp University, by the way. Good. Which we just finished the ninth yeah. Hemp University of three years. There's We're, no real money in education. There a little bit, you know, with sponsors and stuff, but it's more build helping to build the infrastructure and educate people. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. You have to. You have to. It's a part of the deal. Um, we're going to wrap up. I feel like we could we could talk about hemp all day cuz you're super passionate about it. Yeah, I am. Yes, you're very I can tell. Um, but I'm going to wrap up a little bit. I forgot to prep you on my final three questions. I do a final three questions, so we're just going to wing it. Okay. You, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Uh, best advice you've ever been given? Never give up and follow your dreams. Who gave you that advice? Do you know? A whole series of people. Mm. You know, you know I, I went to a lot of Tony Robbins stuff, a lot of, you know, and that was part of the 60s culture, right? It's self help, yeah. it's self development. For sure. And, the, you know, they, and I think it was Margaret Mead that said, never think that a small group of people cannot change the world 
for in fact, that's the only ones that do. Yeah. And the other thing is, is that uh, Albert Einstein said this, you can never find solutions to social problems from the same mindset that created the social problems in the first place. I'm clearly not the mindset of the establishment. No, you are not. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Um, you don't live in Southern Oregon, right? You're, we talked about this. You're kind of a vagabond right now. Uh, yeah, but I'm thinking of having a pre I mean, I have my motorhome up here. Nice. Okay. Okay, so the question is what I always ask people because most of the people I interview live here. If you ever left this place, what would you miss the most? What would bring you back here? So what, let's pose it this way. What do you love about Southern Oregon? The spiritual energy of, uh, of Ashland mm. and Neil Diamond Walsh. I love that guy. Neil Diamond Walsh? Yeah, he wrote the, the series of books called The Conversations with God. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think he is spot dead on right on everything he says. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Good answer. Um, my final question, if you were ever given a final meal and a final drink, what would that look like? It would be chocolate with hemp seeds. <laughs> okay. Healthy chocolate with hemp seeds, mm -hmm. infused with hemp oil and hemp seeds. Okay. Okay, it would be the final meal. That's right. it. And a final drink would be, I guess it would be wheatgrass. Wheatgrass, very yeah. healthy, Bruce. Because it may not be my final, <laughs> if I drink that, it may not be my Maybe, final okay. meal. Okay, very, that's brilliant, that's brilliant. Okay, chocolate with hemp seeds and wheatgrass. Cheers, yeah. I love it. You've been a lot of fun. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing this. I absolutely love your stories. And again, I think we could probably, you probably have a lot of stories. I get a lot. They, <laughs> they, they, they keep on going. Okay, I'm sure. I'm sure. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. You can also uh, look for Offscript on Google Play and Stitcher. Check out the video portion at ktvl.com. Just click on features and then Offscript one more time. The King of Pots, Bruce Perlowin. You're now the King of Hemp, though, I think. Yes, I am the King of Hemp. I mean, at least I own the trademark, and we're going to be the number one brand in pre-roll, and hemp pre-rolls. I love it. King of Pot, King of Hemp. Well, I transitioned from the King of right. Pot to the King of Hemp. Because you don't smoke weed anymore. Don't tell anyone the King of Pot doesn't smoke pot. It's very embarrassing. So embarrassing. All right, Bruce Perlowin, thank but you. But I am going to start right before I go to bed, because I know how healthy it is. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for being here.